Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's New York City Bureau. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, coming to you from STAT's San Francisco Outpost. Fans of Adam Feuerstein will be disappointed for a second week in a row as he is not on the podcast because he is moving into a new home. It may not surprise you to learn that he is live tweeting that experience, so if you're curious about his progress, you can find him there. It's Thursday, January 31st, and here's what's on the docket this week. Another potential treatment for Alzheimer's disease just failed. We'll talk about what it means and doesn't mean for the drug industry's quest to find a therapy that actually works. A biotech company called Agenis is launching a cryptocurrency that grants you a cut of any sales generated by its experimental cancer immunotherapy drug. We'll break down this idea and ask whether it's as unusual as it sounds. It's been a rough week for large pharma companies. Our stat colleague Ed Silverman will join us to talk about what's all gone wrong and whether big pharma is an endangered species. And speaking of rare animals, we're going to round off this episode by talking about healthcare's unicorns. We'll discuss a new analysis of just how infrequently these buzzy companies publish their research. And we'll also talk about the latest healthcare unicorn poised to join the herd. And technically speaking, a group of unicorns is called a blessing and not a herd. Good to know. But first, a word about Stat Plus. Enjoying the Read Out Loud? You can get more exclusive coverage from Adam, Rebecca, Damien, and others at Stat with a Stat Plus subscription. Stat Plus delivers daily, market-moving coverage of biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. By subscribing today, you'll get access to exclusive stories from our award-winning team every day. And as a special thanks to you, our podcast listener, subscribe to Stat Plus now and enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD, P-O-D. We hope you enjoy Stat Plus, and thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener. For this first segment, let's talk about Alzheimer's disease. If you've followed the news in recent years, you know already that drug after drug has come up short in actually delaying the onset of the disease. And it happened again. So this week, the Swiss pharma giant Roche ended a pair of late-stage trials after realizing that its Alzheimer's drug had no chance of showing a benefit compared with placebo. And what's interesting about this news is that, while it obviously pertains to Roche, all of the conversation seems to be centering around Biogen. That's right. So Biogen is in possession of what's widely regarded as the best hope for a near-term treatment for Alzheimer's. Their drug is called aducanumab, and it's in the middle of two late-stage trials of its own with results expected next year. So what does the Roche failure have to do with that? Well, that kind of depends on whom you ask, but across the top, both aducanumab and the Roche drug are meant to treat Alzheimer's by targeting plaques in the brain called amyloids, which is a bet that those plaques play a key role in how the disease progresses. The problem is that literally no amyloid drug has ever worked, and so the amyloid hypothesis is, it depends on whom you ask on that as well, either on its last legs or a relic of a woebegone time. And so with that in mind, Roche's failure as the umpteenth setback in amyloid world could pretty easily be read as a sign that aducanumab's odds of success are pretty low. But that reading might not be entirely fair to Biogen. Aducanumab is an amyloid drug, yes, but it binds to those plaques in a different way than the drugs that came before it. In earlier studies, aducanumab both cleared out plaques and made a difference in patients' cognition. That is something that the Roche treatment never did. All of that is true, and yet, at the same time, it's also perfectly reasonable, I think, 
to point to the miles-long list of failed amyloid drugs and conclude that aducanumab is more than likely doomed. And I think the whole conversation this week really underlines how little we know about Alzheimer's and how to treat it. I remember talking to the people at Eli Lilly who were involved in a drug no one talks about anymore called solanezumab because we definitively know it doesn't work. And they described it, I think, pretty elegantly, which is that what they were doing in terms of trying to do clinical trials while learning about the drug was like building a car while driving it. So let's go back to Biogen. They had some Alzheimer's news of their own this week, right? They did. As we mentioned, aducanumab is in these late stage trials that will read out in 2020. But without seeing the results from those, Biogen decided to start another late stage trial in patients who are even earlier in the Alzheimer's disease process than the ones they're testing the drug on now. So in the sort of glass half full, half empty conversation about Alzheimer's, you could say, oh, they must be so confident in how well aducanumab works that they're ready to do this other trial site unseen. Or you could look back at the history of amyloid drugs and their failures and remember that almost every company says, oh, we should have started earlier in the disease process and say Biogen's decision is a sign that they know that the trials that are already going are going to fail. So they're just kind of preempting that conversation by going early before having to concede those failures. up, we're going to talk about an extremely 2018 story happening in 2019. It's right at the intersection of cryptocurrency and cancer immunotherapy development. That's right. This week, a Boston area company called Agenis announced that it's introducing what it's calling the Biotech Electronic Security Token, or BEST, which is a digital currency that you can buy, and it entitles you to a cut of any sales generated by an experimental checkpoint inhibitor that Agenis is developing. And I assume this is all on the blockchain and powered by machine learning. So sadly, the press release did not make mention of machine learning or artificial intelligence. But yes, this token is powered by blockchain technology. And for the uninitiated, that's the system that records all the transactions for Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies and allows for things like smart contracts and uh, other kind of like financial instruments that arguably were possible with previous technologies. But blockchain is a more fun word to say. So what's the reaction to all of this, Ben? So I think the reaction has, at least on Twitter, which is maybe not the best barometer for human interactions, but the reaction has leaned toward mockery or confusion. Um, I think the way you put it is excellent. This is a very 2018 idea to be doing in 2019. So it's easy to raise an eyebrow or poke fun of. But I think the most sort of trenchant question people have had is, Agenis is a publicly traded company. If it wants to raise money, why wouldn't it just offer shares on the public markets rather than invent a coin to sell to qualified investors? And there's another issue, right? Now is kind of a weird time to be getting into crypto, is it not? Right. So cryptocurrencies are doing very, very badly. Uh, JP Morgan published a study just last week estimating that the collective market value of the entire cryptocurrency universe has fallen to $125 billion, which is a lot of money, but it's down from a peak of $800 billion just at the start of last year. And so how new of an idea is this, what Agenis is trying to do? Well, so according to the company, they are the first biotech drug development firm to issue a coin to fund their research. And it seems like that's true. But an interesting case study is that of a company called Nebula Genomics, which you may recall, they were founded by the pioneering geneticist George Church out of Harvard, and they made a lot of news when first they announced their intentions. But interestingly, when they did that, they said they were planning to do an initial coin offering to back their business of sequencing people's genomes. But when Nebula actually launched that genomic service this past November, it raised money from VCs, not by doing an ICO, although it is still using blockchain technology. But it's interesting that Nebula backed away from crypto, as at least we understand it, and that could conceivably be a cautionary tale for Agenis as they move forward. 
So how about the basic idea of what a genus is trying to do? How new is that? Well, that's where there might be some utility here, although maybe not in this case. Brad Longcar, an investor who is very active on Twitter, made a really interesting point. This application, issuing a coin to raise money for a cancer immunotherapy, might be a little bit fraught and maybe won't turn a lot of heads. But it does answer a question that people in biotech and in finance at large have had, which is, what if there's a company, a drug company, for example, with a wide pipeline, and you don't care about 95% of it, but they have exactly one drug that you're interested in? You could buy one share of that company, and then your money is tied to the fortunes of things you don't care about. But what if you could invest just in the idea that you like? And so conceptually, this thing that Agenda is doing does open the door for that in the future. So let's talk in more specifics about what Agenis is trying to do here. Its drug is a type of checkpoint inhibitor for cancer. Specifically, it's a PD-1 inhibitor. That's the same category as blockbusters like Keytruda and Opdivo. And there are already a million PD-1 inhibitors on the market. Does that bode poorly for what Agenis is trying to do here? That's the other major caveat here is, is, yeah, this is arguably the most crowded space in like modern oncologic history, which is to say that even if a genus succeeds and enters the market with this therapy, they would be scratching out for scraps that were left by these colossally successful drugs. So if you hold one of these tokens, these best coins, it's kind of unclear what kind of royalty you're going to get. And that's, again, assuming that the drug works and wins FDA approval, which is quite an assumption to make. talk about a segment of polite society that doesn't usually get a lot of sympathy. Big Pharma is having a rough one. Over the past few weeks, major drug companies have put out financial projections that disappointed investors, and they're looking forward to a year of insults from the White House and pointed questions from the Democrat-controlled House of Representatives. It doesn't seem that long ago that Big Pharma was soaring and everyone was happy. To talk about how it all went wrong, we invited Stats Ed Silverman, that's Mr. Fermilot himself, to talk about the plight of the Pfizer's of the world. Ed, welcome to the podcast. Hi, how are you guys doing? Not bad. So Ed, to start out, what happened? Why are we seeing all these gloomy headlines about the future of Big Pharma? Well, it depends which headlines you read. In some respects, it's a mixed bag. If the glass is half full, you could say there's a tremendous surge in innovation over the recent past that has yielded different kinds of treatments for different forms of cancer and other hard-to-treat illnesses and rare diseases, and certainly that's a good thing. On the other hand, though, if the glass is half empty, uh, you see companies, particularly the biggest ones, still struggling in varying degrees with their overarching strategies. And of course, there's a lot of to do about pricing and how that's going to affect how they do business day to day and forecast their long range plans. So speaking of pricing, it's starting to look like the House Democrats are making good on their campaign promise to really take on that issue. And then just this week, we saw Republicans slam drug companies on the drug pricing issue during committee hearings on Capitol Hill. I'm curious, what do you think we can reasonably expect in 2019? Will it be just a bunch of hearings that don't go anywhere? Or should pharma be worried about actual legislation that changes how they do business? A little of both and some more beyond that. I think we had two hearings already this week, a Senate hearing and a House hearing. Uh, There was some interesting uh, data and viewpoints that were expressed, but I'm not sure the hearings really accomplished anything right now. It's really a fact-finding mission for the the, uh, congressional lawmakers. They do have a couple of procedural issues, like trying to get drug company executives 
to appear and to actually answer meaningful questions. This is going to be a long process in any event, so we'll see more hearings, how substantive they'll be, how much they'll yield. I think it's unfortunately too soon to say. It's unclear. And what about the threat of actual legislation? Like, are we in for just a parade of hearings, or is it possible that the law might change and to pharma's detriment? As far as legislation goes, we've already seen a whole bunch of bills tossed out there. Some of them are essentially bills that we've seen introduced at least once before, importing drugs, at least for personal use from Canada, negotiating with Medicaid. But the issue is, can they really gain traction? The House can move forward. The Republicans control the Senate, obviously, but you've got Chuck Grassley heading the Senate Finance Committee. You've got some other Republican senators making noise. So there's obviously an awareness, a political calculation by some of these senators that it's a populist issue that's not going to go away. And if Trump does something more than try to use his bully pulpit and Alex Azar, the Health and Human Service Secretary, finds the right combination of levers to pressure the pharmaceutical industry, some of the Republican senators might want to get ahead of the curve and make it clear that they're willing to play ball, give their constituents the right impression, such as it is, and then perhaps one or more bills might actually go somewhere, particularly if, again, there's a sense that Trump would sign something, if only to make it look to his base that he's going to follow through on a campaign promise. So I think it's worth watching very closely the progress of any of these bills, because right now, at least one of them, just in terms of odds, just might have the potential to go somewhere. So there's a bit of a paradox in play here. Major drug companies can't please investors without raising drug prices. But at the same time, it's looking like they can't raise drug prices in the same way because of politicians. So provocative question for you. Is big pharma becoming an endangered species? Oh, I don't think so. I think the reality of human existence is people get sick and die every day. And so there's always going to be a need for treatment. So there's always going to be money chasing after the right solutions. And I realize that's perhaps sounds simplistic and it's very overarching sort of view of things, but it is true. And so uh, we're going to need medicines. There are going to be people investing in them. So there there will be drug companies, big or small, looking to do that kind of work, make those kinds of treatments and make the profits. Is big pharma, as we think of it today, uh, in danger? I think that most of the big names we know are struggling with strategy somehow. I think the, the, the day and age of the big M&A, one big company swallowing another, is, is, is someone's hit the pause button existentially right now. There doesn't seem to be the appetite to really take that on for the time being. But most of these companies do, however, as part of this uh, landscape, do face the pricing pressures that we were just discussing. And that does raise the specter, maybe not simplistically across the board, but it does mean that they're going to see new challenges in how they do raise prices, if and when they can, by how much, how they justify it, and how do they navigate that terribly mysterious Rube Goldberg-like pricing system that we all live with. 
So let's talk about GlaxoSmithKline, which is one of the most recognizable drug companies in, in human history, but is one that is by no means immune to the existential stuff that you were just talking about. Uh, you and our colleague Matt Herper wrote a story about GSK's quest for an identity under its new CEO. What did you learn from reporting that out? Like, has GSK figured out a path to big pharma survival in the modern world that, that might be replicable for other companies? Well, like a lot of things, remains to be seen. They're clearly in the early stages of a remake. Uh, they're trying to revive their interest in cancer. Uh, at the same time, they are getting rid or will get rid of the consumer business. That'll leave them pretty much as a pharmaceutical and vaccines company. They've got some good products. They've got a shingles vaccine called Shingris that is much more effective than a rival vaccine. And it's, it's so there's so much demand, they can't produce enough of it fast enough. And it's going to be like that for a while, actually. I always wonder, though, they, despite the fact that they've got some strong products, there's revenue growth, there's cash flow, they have to rely on that kind of cash flow to sustain everything they need to do. Otherwise, they have to borrow more, and that's always suspect. And so they've got the, the age-old challenge. Can R&D, can the pipeline deliver the way they need to? And I think of Johnson & Johnson, which has sort of a three-legged existence. They've got pharmaceuticals. But they've also got medical devices and a big health consumer division. And so when you look at it that way, the Johnson & Johnson also has strong pharmaceutical products. They're in slightly different areas, perhaps. But generally speaking, they have a consumer division that helps provide some stable cash flow for the times when pharma R&D is not delivering the way you hope. So Glaxo's putting itself in a position, as, and more of the big pharma companies uh, have done that. They've um, decided they're going to be in certain areas. So they've got the vagaries of what the pipeline can produce, and that's one of the, the challenges they face in managing their businesses. And meanwhile, for better or worse, Johnson & Johnson chugs along with that cash flow. Well, we'll continue to watch your reporting on these challenges. Ed, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Next up, we're going to talk about unicorns. So for the blissfully uninitiated, that is the kind of bizarre term that Silicon Valley or someone Silicon Valley-esque invented to describe private companies that are valued at over $1 billion. So I looked up the current list of unicorns that came courtesy of the data firm CB Insights, and there are over 300 of them globally across all different industries. So I have a trivia question for you, Damien. In the post-Moderna era, how many unicorns are there working in biotech or healthcare right now? Uh, wow. I feel like I also see these charts and graphs and don't know what half the companies are. I would guess like 14. So there are actually 30. Uh, so you were in the right ballpark, but um, there are more unicorns in the blessing um, than I would have guessed either. So when I was scrolling through this list, I was surprised to find that a lot of them were companies I had literally never heard of. And I write about these companies for a living. So putting you on the spot again, Damien, off the top of your head, can you name five unicorns right now working in healthcare or biotech? It's a surprisingly hard question. I, well, yeah, my first thought are uh, my friends over at Sam Ahmed who are out to cure baldness. But then so many of the biotech ones have gone public. I, I don't think I could get past three, honestly, and I don't want to waste people's time by hearing me talk about it. So Damien, you were right about Sam Ahmed, uh, but who knew that other biotech unicorns include SnapDeal, CureVac, Gan and Lee Pharmaceuticals, 
Ginkgo Bioworks, and I suppose we should have thought of Royvant. But it's surprisingly a list of not super big names. And this week brought news that there is a new healthcare unicorn poised to join that blessing, and that company is Hims, which is a San Francisco-based telemedicine startup that is in the business of online prescriptions for generic drugs for conditions like hair loss and erectile dysfunction. And the company's really pitching men on an experience, an experience that's convenient and stigma-free. And their big pitch is stylish packaging, edgy advertising. You may have seen it on the New York subway. Uh, The company also recently expanded into women's health uh, with a brand appropriately called Hers. So I'm not an expert on the global generics business, but I do see headlines time and again about how price erosion and competition are driving down profitability in that industry. And so when I hear about a company that is selling generics, but also spending lots of money on advertising, I'm curious, why is this a billion dollar business? Yeah, so you're not the only one to sound skeptical. Max Neeson of Bloomberg uh, was pretty unimpressed by the news that this company is about to become a unicorn. He wrote a great column this week uh, pointing out that the companies offering um, these generic drugs are commoditized. They might be cheaper elsewhere. And the company's facing pretty fierce competition. There are a lot of companies in the space trying to do this sort of online prescription thing. And Hims is going to have to keep shelling out a ton of money on advertising if it wants to stay ahead. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the sort of boom and bust of meal delivery startups a few years ago, where if you listen to a podcast or drive a car or whatever, you would be bombarded with ads for Blue Apron. But then suddenly other companies came into the fold. And I remember getting a glimpse at Blue Apron's documents before they went public. And the amount of money they were spending on marketing was just plainly untenable. And their margins were tiny. And if you look at Blue Apron's stock price performance over the past year, I think the market has kind of wrapped its head around the fact that these sort of commoditized, high-touch, high-advertising-cost businesses are maybe not the best things moving forward. So in other unicorn news this week, there's a new analysis out from a team of Stanford researchers, including the well-known watchdog John Ioannidis. That team examined the published research output of healthcare's unicorns past and present. And they found that, in general, these companies contribute almost nothing to high-impact scientific literature. Some of them have not even published at all. That's really interesting. So who are the worst offenders among the the blessing of unicorns? So according to this analysis, there were three companies, Outcome Health, Guahau, and Oscar Health, that had zero published papers. Uh, Two more of them, Clover Health and ZocDoc, had published just one paper. And interestingly, all of those companies fall in the digital health category. So on the other side, who deserves credit for their transparency, or at least their willingness to pay the fees to get your stuff published in impact journals. So here's a crazy statistic. Let's talk about two companies, 23andMe and Adaptive Biotechnologies. That's a diagnostics company out of Seattle. Together, they accounted for nearly half of all the papers published by unicorns identified in the analysis. Almost half of them came from just two companies. So one thing that I find interesting, I saw a little bit of pushback to this research on Twitter from people saying that, you know, publishing in journals is not definitely not the only way, but it's maybe not even the best way to think about how serious the science is going on at these companies. Now, obviously, the Theranos example stands out. If they had published, then someone might have blown the whistle even sooner. But is it unfair of us to look askance at companies that tend to do their science in secret? So I think that critique is fair, but I also do think it is one and a very important metric of how transparent a a company is. You know, the peer review process and 
you know, opening up what you're doing to the review of scientists all over the world is kind of crucial in, in vetting these ideas in kind of proving that they, they do have scientific merit. And so I think it is something um, that's important to look at, even if there may be other metrics as well. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Hyacinth and Bonato who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode. Tell us about your favorite unicorn or the next cryptocurrency you want to see in biotech. You can even ask us questions or rant about how horribly wrong we are. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. We really do appreciate the feedback, so thank you. See you next week.